Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. John doesn't know this, but we first crossed paths during the terror attacks in Westminster in 2017. We were both hunkered down in the same corridor in Normanshaw North on the Westminster estate with a hundred or so others. As reports came in that the terrorist had been killed and that police were gradually clearing the building, we all understandably relaxed a little bit. And I remember John getting up and basically saying to everyone in the room that after this experience, it's okay not to be okay. He mentioned how he and other colleagues had been affected by the murder of their colleague Joe Cox and said that if we were struggling, there was support out there for us. At the time, I didn't think much of it. I was probably just a bit too tired. But I look back at that and think about how appreciated those words could have been by so many people. The message was, you're not alone and you didn't go through this alone. And it took some steel for John to get up and be so open with a room of strangers like that. It showed courage and it showed leadership. Me and John have briefly crossed paths since, in Parliament and outside. And I wanted to speak to him because few of us fit the bill for this podcast more. It was a really interesting chat and I got a sense that if history had been different in politics and in the Labour Party in the past decade, things could have been quite different for John. You got the sense that he was, and still is, broadly, a natural team player, but one who has their breaking points. I hope in this podcast I get to examine what it's like to say enough is enough to your own party, to your own tribe, and to your own friends. Here's John's story. I hope you enjoy it. Here with me today is John Woodcock, the UK's government advisor on political violence and disruption, and the Prime Minister's trade envoy to Tanzania. John currently sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Previously, he was the Labour MP for Barrow, elected in 2010. He quit the Labour Party in 2018 and became an independent MP. I'm going to start this discussion, um, like I start many conversations, by talking about myself a little bit. Um, when I was 16, 18, and was starting getting involved in, in politics and interest in politics, I had a dream of one day wanting to become a politician. You know, my dream would be one day be an MP. It's how I felt I could change the world, and that's what, you know, that's what gets people engaged and involved in politics, wanting to make positive change. However, I... Liked most MPs. I kind of, or maybe even stronger, I kind of hated MPs and political culture. And I, and I, that came from a place of believing I 
couldn't be one. I couldn't be robotic and I couldn't be on message consistently. And that realization that I couldn't be like that led to some resentment about how politics was conducted. I heard you previously say uh, when you were an MP that there was a time when politicians were seen as quite robotic and that it was all about receiving a message from on high and sticking to it as much as you could. And this led to a sense of disillusionment amongst the public. Was there ever a sense with yourself, similarly to the doubts that I had, that you might struggle as a politician because you couldn't remain robotic, that you would have to speak your mind and step out of line occasionally? That's a good question. And um, thanks for asking me on on to this. Uh, By the way, it's really good to get to talk to you and to talk about the subject you're dealing with. I, I I suppose, I mean, thinking about it, I suppose the answer is no, because I came, I was very much a product of that world, of robot world, if you want to call it like call it that. In terms, you know, I, I'd had, um, prior to becoming an MP, I'd been part of the Labour Party's opposition research task force and and that involved um writing scripts for the labor party in the 2005 election where absolutely everyone was supposed to uh remain on message you were very clear about what the lines were and then i'd i'd been um spoke from a cabinet minister spoke from gordon brown um and 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 then from the so from the centre again you were sort of really valuing message discipline and then was in a um, the election campaign where when I was first standing in 2010 to become the Labour MP for for Bauer, um we were incredibly disciplined in what the uh, the message was going to be and it we, we were just we were talking about the, the the five-year delay on on uh, that the choice to put on the the Trident program, and it was in pretty much every sentence, um, and it sort of worked. I mean, all of that stuff uh, you could sort I'd sort of seen the results of, of it, and so I was I don't I suppose I wasn't as prepared for going in and then um, thinking. Oh, actually, no. I'm. I my, my my viewpoint matters as an individual here, when my point of view matters, and I want to, I want to talk about it. So it's sort of it was learning on it was learning on the job from my perspective. But then I said, and then looking back, I suppose I was I was coming through the system at a time when the the faith in that sort of machine message making um, message discipline was really eroding. Um, and some of that, I think, was a bit naive. Um, I remember a lot of Ed Miliband people saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, we don't, we, we, we hate the machine. We just want to flower and be nice and what we think, and uh, and, and and sort of not really initially understanding that uh, 
to move the needle in terms of public perception on stuff you have you do have to uh, hammer home a message uh to the point that you you sort of feel quite bored with it before it before it catches on but um, so there was part of that naivety but then also i think people were kind of seeing through those and were just much less tolerant I and mean, probably rightly of those kind of those stock interviews that you do see so often where your your talk your spokesperson your mp representing the party or the government is determined to only get one point across and they're just absolutely excruciating to listen to um and the phrases seem seem hackneyed so what so all of that is a is a bit conflicted and i i suppose i am still conflicted about where the balance ought to be um and I, I'm really conscious that I, that my view has changed diametrically depending on whether I've been the one in the centre expecting everyone else to listen to me <laughs> or the outside saying, hang on a minute, no, I'm a, I've got my own view and, yours are, and I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah, and it's one of those things that like, it takes an incredibly um, gifted politician perhaps to stay on message but come across as natural, you know, just have the kind of an ability to say the same thing over and over again. Yeah. While in new language that comes across as, you know, straightforward. Now, sometimes politicians can be perhaps a bit too flowery because they are attempting to say the same message, but they get in a new way. It's, no, that's not the message isn't clear. So these are to say. Um, I do remember once. It, man, it was many years ago, um, and this was after Miliband um, was no longer Labour leader. He was on Radio 4, I think he was just sitting in for someone else. And I can't really remember what he was talking about. I think it was a phone-in show, and I thought, wow, he's he's fantastic. <laughs> you know, someone who was always a bit lukewarm to slightly, um, slightly odd and robotic at Miliband, saying yeah. he's actually really dryly funny and quite charming. And I was thinking, yeah. well, of course, you don't you don't reach the levels that he reached without having some personality and some charisma. Um, yeah. And it just seems frustrating that when he was free to be himself on the radio show, just be that you know yeah nerd you know that was um and my frustration would be oh why can't politicians when they're in office or when that's in your role be free to speak like that but i'm not naive as well that actually yeah. i speak for a very small minority of hyper engaged individuals you know, when you're trying to get a message out to the general public actually they don't they only hear Sadiq Khan talk about being a son of the bus driver once or twice. Mm. Someone like me hears it about fifty million times. Yeah. There is there is a place for that. But yeah, it's interesting you were saying that actually when you when you first came into office you were you know, I'm of this world. I'm you know, fairly self confident, didn't have those doubts. Mm. Do you think that because you in office during such a particularly tumultuous period for our politics and particularly for the Labour Party, the reputation that you eventually got of someone being outspoken and 
independent-minded, that that just come by the sheer weight of your environment? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I, I, I so, so we, uh, in terms of the, the, the process and the, and the, and the media, the medium and the media by which um, you politicians seek to communicate. I suppose I was moving from the back room to the front room at a uh, to 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 the front line at, at a period of that explosion in the breadth of channels by which people uh, by which you can communicate and two way communication. I mean, I, so I remember being in. Uh, in number 10, Gordon Brown spokesman, it must have been late 2008, and there being a conversation or some point in 2008, and uh, there was this new thing called Twitter, and <laughs> should number 10 be on that? You know, and and it, it was absolutely not. <laughs> no, this is like a gross distraction. And other people who were t- taking a, a kind of a, a wider and probably more astute view were, were saying to us, look, you guys are obsessed with this really narrow channel of basically talking to political journalists, the political lobby who write for the mainstream media um, and getting your page lead um, in the paper the next day or or leading the headlines um, on today program and there was so much more out there and actually you you saw that so you saw that explosion and so i think that was another thing that was obviously that has changed the complexity to the dynamic where you've got people who are um so that 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 repetition and and although although most people aren't hyper aware um, they can smell inauthenticity um, when things are forced or awkward, or when the interview the interviewee is uncomfortable. They can smell that at a moment, um, and so it, and so it is really difficult. And so, and I, I will go on to answer your question, but I think you raised some really good points in what you said previously, and and so that. That skill, I think you're absolutely right of of being of being human, uh, of 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 coming across as human, even uh, and being able to um, put across a uh, a political point is it is rare and it does mark people does mark people out. And I remember the the Ed Miliband <laughs> stuff where there were a lot of and he, I think, see. From what I've seen since, seems to feel that yeah, if only I'd beat myself, everything would have been great. <laughs> um, and 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 I think it's difficult if you're if someone like Ed because I think his, I mean, his set of beliefs actually underneath the surface were not electable. Yeah. They would, you know, so if he could have been himself and he could have crashed the Labour Party uh, ship um, just by having a lovely time and sort of saying what he thought um, of being. Pretty dab left wing, actually. I mean, you know, you sort of hear him say, you know, Jeremy was right on this, these particular, this particular stuff. <laughs> no, he wasn't. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and and so 
And so if you've got a, and so there is a difficulty of your whole well, letting your leader be a bit inauthentic if their views are widely in <laughs> with what actually is needed. Um, alternative didn't work either because yes, he did sort of seem hemmed in and, and that was not satisfactory either. Yeah, I, I think that's totally, um, it's totally true. When I, when I think about those, those the classic awkward Ed moments, my mind goes to stuff like um, his appearance on Desert Island Discs, and I remember listening to that and just going, "Oh, this is this is dreadful. This is a guy who clearly doesn't like music." And I just say, and I was like, it would be far more refreshing if a politician just says, "No, I would much rather discuss transport policy um, than what my favorite pop tunes." And if, and if a politician can say that and say, "This is just not like," I find it slightly refreshing on um, the rest is politics podcast um, with Rory Stewart, where he's just open about it. he just doesn't has no interest in popular culture, seemingly. Uh, yeah. I just kind of that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fine. You know, we should have done more of that with with Gordon. I was never part of Gordon's sort of inner circle, really. Although I, I was in terms of personnel for for a little while, but yeah, you know, the, there's a whole sort of kind of. I mean, I remember that that he would be briefed on what was happening in the X Factor because he thought. You know, because it, we always thought that that was what was that was what we needed. Didn't want to get caught out. And looking back, you think, what, what, you know, why did we do that? Yeah. Whereas, in in fact, the, I mean, stuff that Gordon was really passionate about. I mean, they, a, an extraordinary knowledge of lower league football, football at all leagues, and you'd sort of go, you, he, he, I remember a couple of a couple of times. I found this happened a fair bit where he'd go and talk to. Um, you're talking to another politician, and you sort of try to make a that you didn't know it, you didn't know maybe someone from another side, or uh, and, and he, he'd say, "Oh, you're a whatever fan," uh, and uh, and politician would go, "Yes, yes, I am," and then it would very quickly become clear that Gordon knew far more about his football team than the sport <laughs> themselves. So, so yes, I, I. I agree, and and I think I mean, that's one of maybe one of the reasons why that sort of that has kind of broken the old model for the for the better, and that maybe social media is one of the things to help with because I think it does sort of sift through. There was that sense that if if everything, all you're going to see about that politician is the clip that going on the six o'clock news or this set piece interview that you can kind of get away with it. Uh, and I don't think that was ever really true, but I think it's certainly not true now in this sort of era where there's so much more, but you asked about, you asked about me. I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I suppose by the end of it, I'd got, that's kind of got into that place, but I suppose I, I really wound Ed, Ed M up and his team. I mean, I sort I like him. I, mean, I don't know what he thinks of me. I mean, I think I, I like to think at times when he wasn't annoyed by me, he could quite like me as well. But for me, I was um, absolutely unrecalcitrant in um, 
being a supporter of New Labour. And I, uh, you, you know, I had been that for sort of some time ago, um, coming up as a student and then uh, young. Was, and I really and I really believed in it. I believed in in uh, in the policy solution. I believed in like, the positioning of it. And I thought it was the only way that Labour could, could win. And so um, he was... Um, is so disappointed when David Miliband didn't win and thought the way that Ed had 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 won was um well was wrong sort of problems um and so and and I and so I was sort of annoyed about that from from day one and so I think probably looking back so much of my um of me kind of being a nuisance was about not being prepared as others were to accept that Ed Miliband had a was had a right and it was okay for him to basically say New Labour was over and and here's my different formulation. I sort of spend the whole of the Ed M years sort of pushing back against it in that in a very sort of small scale way. It's very very rare that that sort of pricks through the kind of levels of consciousness but that sort of set me in a, in a kind of different mindset i um i guess and then and then when you know jumping forward but when when then uh naively i thought well you soft left ed goes um we lost under soft left left ed um, this shows that we need to, the Labour Party members. Labour Party will understand we need something different. Um, I was friend supporter, uh, one of the people running Liz Kendall's campaign. Uh, she's the only. There's only two candidates that are uh, that will be different at you because you know at, at, in the 2015 election campaign, leadership election campaign, because Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham basically more of the same. And Miliband soft left in there, so they'll vote for change. They'll want to win again. Um, so it's a change election. It's either Liz Kendall or Jeremy Corbyn. So we win, and of course, that was <laughs> catastrophically wrong in, in, in the crucial aspect. Um, and, and so that just sort of blew, blew. And so having you know, this is the Labour Party. This is what the Labour Party should be about. This is how we win. This is how we change. Uh, lies is how we change the country. Being having been dissatisfied for years under Ed Miliband, it was just sort of off the reservation for Jeremy because it was just not anything, nothing that he believed believes in was really compatible with how I thought uh, the Labour Party should should be. At which point it was sort of you're kind of like veer between some levels of. <laughs> actual depression and sort of disengagement in ways to you know you've got to try and got to try and fight this and 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 so and so what your what the rest of what the system thought of you in that becomes sort of less important because you just think the system has been totally hijacked by um something which is kind of alien to its tradition it, it does sound like somewhat that if circumstances had been different. For example, had David won after the ten, mm. um, and the Labour Party had taken a slightly different direction, and I, 
I presume you may have felt in those years leading up to 2015 we're probably not going to win. You know, like the the, the anxiety that actually Ed isn't delivering where we like the just consistent poll leads, you know, the the, the murmurings of 35% isn't strong enough. Like we aren't not, you know, we aren't going to win. That causes a sort of attention, a frustration, which will come out. But however, if circumstances were different, you feel like, you know, if, <laughs> if history had been different, you were had the experience, had the personality in which you you wouldn't have developed into the, the kind of figure of um you, the the side on the the voice on the outside, the critical voice, the the stepping out of line individual, the person who's gonna be a stick in the mud because it's what they believe in, because actually the path was what you believed in and you it things would have been different. It wasn't and yeah, I, I I think probably, have your character. Probably probably would have been I mean look, I, I a lot of us a lot <laughs> David Miliband, I think, grew as a new Labour figure in that Twitch Town campaign, which he lost, which probably sort of gives my sense of my kind of flawed political judgment overall. Uh, but I respected David M much more by the end of that Twitch Town campaign than I did at the beginning. I mean, for 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 a bunch of us who were sort of advisors in the in that final sort of five years of Labour government. Uh, of the Labour government between 05 and 2010, uh, I mean, David was pretty soft <laughs> for, um, but but yes, I think it, it it would have been different. And and yes, absolutely, I was always convinced that Ed that Labour would lose in 2015 under uh, under Ed. But you know, I thought that even if I thought we were gonna we were gonna win. And I did. I didn't think it was like. So I, I mean, I would say I was confident. I I thought we would, I thought we would lose. But I think, um, I thought well, look, even if we did win, um, ultimately we're going to set back um, the centre left for a generation because this prescription is hopeless. This won't work. Um, we might be able to stick, even if we wanted to stitch something together, which which then would get absolutely wiped out at the next election, and then we were, um, it, uh, 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 and then we were sort of miles behind. I mean, none of that, none of that was was a premonition of what I didn't understand the Labour Party's capacity for self destruction or to go into the. To go into the wilderness, which which was which was really naive in in twenty in in twenty fifteen, um, I thought the choice was was always between a sort of kind of mushy um, comfort zone Labour and a new sort of new Labour that that could win. I know I never expected uh, Jeremy to be able to. Um, come in and, and, and hijack the party in the way that he did. Yeah, I, I feel like my journey was of someone who was, I would say, kind of that kind of classic, mushy, soft-left, guardian reader kind of politics. <laughs> I don't know, in the kind of admitted them years, I was I was very young, um, and I would be like, oh, I wish Labour were a bit more radical, but 
you know, I signed up to the Labour Party because I still thought, get the Tories out sort of thing. Um, yeah. uh, and then when 2015 happened, I remember being absolutely crushed and devastated because well, I believed in the project and I just thought, oh no, this is, you know, I, I had hope and the outcome was so much worse than many of us expected or uh, maybe not yourself, but many of us. Um, and so I ended up voting for Liz Kendall. You know, I had realised that you know, I was wrong. Um, the Labour Party can't just appeal to people like me. If anything, the Labour Party has to make um, people like myself, kind of liberal, reading graduates, a bit uncomfortable by some of the things you say and some of the, uh, how we're talking. Um, but my friends... <laughs> <laughs> didn't feel the same way but it's interesting that i think what in part one of my obsessions with authenticity um in politics um comes from this feeling of trying to understand how 2015 happened and we'll get into probably our disagreements about jeremy corbyn and his politics but he came across as an authentic person, as a you know, authentic magic grandpa figure. Wow. Um, and I think that was hugely powerful. I think, actually, I think he had a, a coalition of support in the Labour Party. They weren't all hard left figures or kind of cranky of crank politics. Lots of them thought, well, let's give him a, give him a try, give him a go. And really reveled in that kind of the shabby suits and the you know the love of pothole covers and whether he likes manhole covers. Um, at least he didn't pretend to like the Arctic Monkeys, you know that sort of thing. Um, have you been able to understand his appeal, or is it still just one of those shocks that yeah. make it through you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think. On on a certain level, that that is right, and and I and I think there was a Jeremy was as a not particularly you know unique of <laughs> unique of those lots of people talking about it about this over the years, but he, he was a canvas on which people could project what they what they wanted. Uh, what they wanted to to feel, and so you know the, the sort of um, you for which is the guy kind of like balloons out, and you get this bit of Betty about just shush. Um, forgive me, uh, my excitable dogs. You you um, you get this you get this ballooning of the of the sense that he's an authentic individual that ends up in that like crazy. Fun poetry that people yeah. and me, the <laughs> heroic, and you know, I, I am the stone fear, the storm, I am the so where there's like completely <laughs> literally ludicrous stuff. And you're like, Have you ever met this guy? What? And let's talk about this. Let me try and, um, okay, shush. And uh, why don't you get why don't you just buzz off actually? Well, you guys, well, in, out, first. Yeah, that you're you're right to kind of pick up it's this kind of the ballooning sense of who who he is from um 
the small deflated balloon or the at least he's an authentic bloke to the huge balloon or almost a demigod yeah uh, like you, occasionally you'll get commentators accusing Keir Starmer supporters or being kind of cult-like similarly and being obsessive I, and I just think look I've been in the Labour Party as an activist as a councillor up close for years and I haven't seen anything towards Keir Starmer in the same way it was with Jeremy Corbyn I remember once uh, at a local constituency fundraiser uh, winning the raffle and as a banterous joke everyone knew that I despised the bloke I want. I picked up the um, Jeremy Corbyn Superman T-shirt <laughs> as the prize I wanted to have, and even the fact that those exist say something. You know these Superman. <laughs> um, and and another member, you know, started tearing up. <laughs> he wanted it so much. I think it may have been signed by Jeremy Corbyn. I think it was a top tier prize, and 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 the MP. <laughs> came over to me and said, you know, you've really upset people by taking that. You know, the, do you want to just think about handling it obviously and be crying? And I was like, this is nuts, but yes, I will. And absolutely, there were tears of joy when I gave the t-shirt. Well, that level of devotion, Yeah, no way have I ever seen anything like that with Keir Starman. I doubt I ever will. Um, no. If an individual says, oh yeah, I think he's doing an all right job, that kind of gives away that they are sort of a moderate in the Labour Party, um, and and he he sort of opened the 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 floodgates on that um, appeal that was crucial to Ed Miliband winning, where he where Ed um, said um, in the in in the Labour in the Labour leadership in 2010, his pitch to the members was. You don't have to swallow all of this hard stuff that New Labour tell you. Um, the uh, you can basically just live your values and your instincts, and that's right. Uh, so don't keep t- having people tell you that what you you sort of want and like it isn't isn't achievable. Um, and so, in the in the sort of you know the pushing the buttons of you know let's have mass spending on on public services and no to any kind of privatization. And so, I mean, that, that did, that was like what a lot of that, that absolutely played to the instincts of, of, you know, a lot of people within the labor party that when were, were not part of that narrow far left sex that, and, and so they had, they felt they had someone who was, who was, was telling them it was all okay. And let's do that. And they were sort of prepared to, go and indulge that that sense for a while and I, I wonder whether part of that was that you know a lot of I think a lot of those party members um were not at the sharp end of of a country that was that was failing and there's there, there were two things within that there's one, you know, was the coalition government all that bad? Looking back, you know, did it? Did it? It, it sort of it it bought a lot of the quite a lot of the centrist consensus as a way of coming into power. That was Cameron's thing to sort of try and move the Tories partly to to the centre. So 
you know, were that it was it so kind of like off, you know, off the park that it was a massive problem for people, really, or or could they just say it was a problem and really, but actually, they were sort of reasonably comfortable keeping it, and so you can you can you can rail against it, but you're not, you don't feel you have to do the sort of hard stuff that actually might change stuff. Another part, you know, that a lot of the demographic of Jeremy Corbyn supporters were doing very nicely. Thank you. No, I, I think that's uh, a lot of truth in that. I think our older members, I think the, the coalition government was very savvy in the way that it shielded older homeowners from uh, some of the aspects of austerity. You know, you know, pensioners were protected. Um, home values uh, most, in most country continued to increase um there was nothing to really rock the boat from their kind of core voting demographic um and the kind of cliche of the late party member being a sort of semi-retired ex-public sector worker you know actually they weren't really horrendously impacted at all by austerity if you're in the younger members and the kind of quite vast intergenerational equality that this country has um the coalition government was bad for you, but actually things are almost so bad for the millennials and the younger generation that they wanted something radical. Like, you know, the amount of house building this country needs, it needs to be radical, it needs to be profound, and 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 you, you couldn't have the same old centrism, it needed to be something radical. So I could kind of understand why some of my friends were, you know, who weren't getting on the way they assumed they would. Mm. They had certain assumptions about, well, I'll go to uni, I'll get a professional job, and then I'll buy a house, and it'll be easy in plain sailing, and that hasn't happened to a certain generation. I can see why there is um, an urge for angry populism amongst that generation. Uh, yeah. But to me, you know, I had the pragmatic instincts of wanting them. <laughs> And then, all, but also had profound. It almost seems like profound isn't a strong enough word for the disagreements I had about foreign policy, and when it came to Jeremy Corbyn's beliefs, we'll get onto that a bit later. But it's, um, yeah, it was one of those. I'm current, slightly gone off on a tangent and this will probably all be worked out <laughs> when this is edited um but i could understand why um younger members wanted um something radical i think that actually there was no politician who was talented enough and brave enough to make the case essentially the new labor case of we have to make hard choices we will have to this is why we can't you know public spend you know, there is no magic money tree as the cliche goes like those tough choices whilst in certain cases privatization will work etc and it's positive make those difficult arguments no one was able to have those arguments to the membership when the membership frankly didn't want to hear you know, that's and fundamentally, um, it just seems like now you had 
a group of older members who were shielded from austerity, who wanted to live the dream, with Jeremy, and younger members who were quite angry about um, the way society was orientated and the inequality that they were facing and just wanted, you know, something radical, something to believe in and were kind of spurned by the 2015 result. And I think those were, those were essentially the two tribes that yeah. brought um, Jeremy Corbyn to power. And I assess from your point of view, it's once that happened, as you said, it was, do, I, do, do we fight or do I just sit in despair? And I did the same as you as went up and down between those two emotions. Yeah. How were those early days and say the early the early year, you know, but before the Brexit referendum mm. recall, but were you simply head in hands or this will blow over? No, I, I was absolutely devastated. I mean I mean the it felt like the the party, the police system that you'd you'd sort of spent so much of your um of, of your life. Um um was uh had just been blown up and i mean i i um i remember you know the final i regret this for look you know and and i feel bad for 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 liz also this but i saw once i realized that we were going to lose um in the 2015, Liz was gonna was gonna lose, and Jeremy was gonna win. Sort of checked out, um, and then the, the, the day of the result was just deeply, deeply painful. Um, and then you just kind of you just don't want you just didn't want any part of it a lot of the time. So you want to do your job as as the representative of your community. Um, and the rest of it just sort of hated, kind of, you know, ate and drank way too much, um, and uh, uh, was able to to in, uh, enroll in the Royal College of Defence Studies for for a year, which sort of a group of a small group of politicians can do each year. So I invest a lot of my time in in that and in the sort of submarine submarine stuff, um, and just sort of. D despaired of of Labour Party politics, and then you kind of um, the you have the you have the the, the challenge to um, to Jeremy the in the the following the following year, and you sort of couldn't get particularly inspired by by that. I'm trying to sort of like think back to the we. So the sort of the sequence of the overwhelming reasons. Um, did I have much faith in it? Faith that it could work. The time can't remember, but I remember thinking it was such a mistake to how to, for the, the basically. I remember the, the strategy of the challenger Owen Smith was the challenger. Was, you know, I don't think these were his views at all, but uh, they decided the strategy was going to be. Um, we believe in all the Jeremy things and we could do it more competently. And he's just, he's just as incompetent old fool, basically. <laughs> this is totally wrong. And then indeed it got sort of, it got smashed, but even if it hadn't got smashed, you'd be thinking, well, what's the point of that? <laughs> you've got, you've just elected yourself as a more competent Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, that's terrible. 
Um, so yeah, I, and and that was, um, I mean, I remember in in, in and in so by sort of twenty twenty seventeen, um, it it just you, it, you know, just sort of quite embittered really, and just figure all four about things, and then they had the snap election and. Um, on our little WhatsApp group, quite actually quite a sizable my WhatsApp group of, sort of people who were MPs who were like um, call group hostile, call group hostile into yeah into <laughs> into sort of whatever the other gradients were <laughs> not down with Jeremy. It's a quite a large group of the PLP, and it's like I remember saying on on as soon as the election, well, it was election now we. We can't say we back him, can we? And they're like, you sort of crickets, tumbleweed, whatever they. And like, it's kind of, oh, right, okay. So uh, everyone else sort of, probably more astutely than me, um, uh, finally said, oh, we're going to have to swallow this. We can't, like, um, he's the leader. Uh, we all want to get reelected. Whereas it, well, you know, wasn't seemed to didn't seem like much of a dilemma to me at all. Just to say, well, uh, I want to be your Labour MP, but I, I, no account could I count as making him prime minister. So uh, if you elect me, I won't vote for him as prime minister. And I don't, I, I'm not aware of any other member of the party doing that in advance of an election. Certainly not getting away with it. And just by total fluke, really, I was able to. Uh, well, first of all, was able to remain the Labour candidate because people didn't. I think, I, and and that is one thing. Where it's, I think it's on, no matter how you know, fundamentally I disagree with Jeremy, it's not unreasonable. I think that if you want a slate of candidates for your party or its leader, that you want them to at least you know, acknowledge <laughs> the bad leadership. So I don't think it's unreasonable that they wanted to um, kick me out, but there just wasn't time. Uh, it was just all too fast. I mean, so I, and I, I remember that. Tom Watson did as deputy leader at the time, and I think uh, I think he sort of basically seemed to do a deal with Jeremy and his people that say, "Look, um, he didn't send this to me in terms, by the way, but I think it's pretty obvious reading what would happen that um, he did a deal saying, "Look, they, they, you took you sort of, you may have talked about wanting to deselect half more than half of these people because they hate you and you hate them, but there's no time." Jeremy, um, so um, let's just get the get the sitting MPs slate through all mass. And by the way, oh look, there's quite a bit of people standing down and contested those where you could get some of your own people in, couldn't you? So I think that was basically the deal, um, which was accepted <laughs> except for me. <laughs> so there was this motion that went to the Labour Party uh, NEC. Which was yes, we will accept um, all of the candidates, <laughs> all of the sitting MPs, except him, except John Woodcock, uh, and they had to, and they put that to a vote, and and I don't know how close it was, but I think it was close enough for people who had a lot, quite a lot on and other things to do to be sort of like being whipped by Tom to stay in and vote for me to remain on the slate, which I'm very grateful for, and then. So, so that was a massive fluke, and then it was like a huge fluke that I was just I was able to win because I just thought it was impossible for 
even no matter how much distance I've got between myself and Jeremy Corbyn, this person who spent the last 40 years of his life opposing Trident nuclear weapons um, and would inevitably, no matter what the ridiculous sort of uh, it, ridiculous suggestions of alternative work for Bower's shipyard and absurd new uses for the submarines, they would shut down the industry in my town. And I thought that, so I spent, I was enormously helped um, by being able to run against Jeremy. And I got a level of definition, which was hugely popular in Barrow. Um, even so, I didn't think it would be possible to win as the Labour candidate. Uh, but then you had kicking in all the other sorts of unforeseen factors that made 2017 just so unexpectedly relatively successful for the um so all of the dissatisfaction with from Tory voters with the Tories own manifesto with Theresa May's manifesto and the um inheritance tax stuff in there absolutely infuriated many people in Barrow I got some of my strongest ever voting support from traditional Tory areas because they were they they were deeply annoyed about that. And then that sort of sense that um he wasn't gonna win. It was okay, you were gonna get a Tory government so it was safe to vote Labour. I'm sure I benefited a bit from that as well. And you know, there might have been a a bit of genuinely positive stuff on the side, but all of that thing kind of like scraped me home in twenty seventeen by two hundred votes in a way that absolutely gobsmacked. To gobsmacked. I, yeah, I, I still sometimes lay awake at night trying to compute the 2017 election. And this is how I can broadly summarize it. I do think that the, the Remain vote coalesced around Labour like it just couldn't do completely in 2019. Um, politics have become just too divided on the lines of Brexit. There was too much baggage in 2019 for this to happen. But in 2017, the Remain vote did kind of coalesce around Labour and the Lib Dems had really collapsed. I do also think that it was a horrendous, horrendous Conservative campaign, putting all their eggs in the basket with Theresa May, who isn't a particularly charismatic individual the campaign mm -hmm. And the manifesto pledge of, you know, the kind of maybe it was hubris, but the, you know, Tory bigwigs were actually finally we could get a um, majority strong enough to tackle um, uh, <laughs> generational inequality and, and, and tax and wealth, which actually it just, it's sad as somebody campaigns on this issue that how toxic it is for um, the key voters for both parties if you want to tax inherited wealth um so that that was incredibly damaging um i found when out canvassing that normally when you're knocking on doors at the start of the campaign the response to jeremy corbyn was vitriolic and i was mainly canvassing in broadly positive labor south london mm. it was still so hostile and i did notice that however you're much more likely to get an older voter come to the door if someone's going to be in. And mm. very often I'd get a very angry reception 
from someone, but knowing that upstairs they have a an adolescent son or daughter who probably loves the bloke. Yeah. And I'm never really hearing from them. And then as the campaign went on, there was less of those very, very hostile responses. And the polling said that actually for a brief window in the kind of weeks or two leading up to 2017, and a brief honeymoon period afterwards, Jeremy Corbyn was relatively quite popular. And I've had to kind of kind of come to terms with that. Mm. I think the realisation that when that popularity died and never ever recovered mm. was after the script poisoning. Mm. And my view is that those of us like us too, very engaged in these debates, knew his foreign policy. And a lot of people didn't know the ins and outs of it. They'd, they'd, they'd heard suck in the press. They'd heard maybe what they assumed was mudslinging. You know, he's a danger. He will he will send um, <laughs> Novichok samples to Russians and believe their word on it. You know, that is the, oh, it's nonsense. It's overblown. It's over the top. It's just the press out to get him. When he revealed himself with his response to Skripal poisoning and his advisors revealed themselves, I think it's that's when cut through happened and people realised, oh, actually, some of those uh, late moderates are maybe talking sense and knew what they were talking about. Mm. Do, you, do you think there was a, there was a moment there? As yeah, that, that does make sense, doesn't it? Um, it was certainly that manifest example of um, why he could never be trusted to stand up for British national security interests and how it would be deeply dangerous. Uh, and and so yes, I, I'm I'm sure I'm sure that's right that it was a it it it, it then um, cut through for people um, in a way that it. Um, it hadn't done before, but not for, but not for the Labour Party, <laughs> and, and 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 that kind of, and so I can't quite, I, I can't remember talking to you now quite what the sequencing was, but it must have been around that time, where a, a much larger group of Labour MPs were talking about we can't possibly have this person standing for us and uh, we can't possibly stand again with this person as leader and we'll have to do something about it because of that sense it'd just be a deeply unpatriotic thing to do but then it must have been still around about that time where there's one um there's one poll that um was it? I think it was YouGov, and they had polled Labour Party members. It, was, it must have been around the time of, of after Skripal, um, and there was, I think, I think a third of Labour Party members said that um, moderate MPs like me—I didn't name me, but moderate MPs like me—were active, were active plants. By the Tory Party, uh, we were part of a deep undercover operation. Now, I mean, maybe I'm. Some people would say I'm not the best example of, of to to 
that's something to refute that. But, um, <laughs> um, but, but and so a whole third of Labour Party members saw that, and fifty percent of member of members said that the only source of news that they trusted was Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, not even like the Labour Party, or like it was it was Jeremy. And we think that so the, the, this. This is a movement that is absolutely at this in this cycle irredeemable because you get to the point where anyone in that in that sort of that's that these ardent fanatical movements, anyone who disagrees um, is doing or gives you a different perspective on what you've decided is the truth in your belief system. Um, is doing so for malign reasons and therefore must be discounted. Mm. And once and once you and once organisations individual have protected their belief system by having that basic that anyone who tells them any different um, is is part of the problem and is the enemy, um, they sort of hermetically seal themselves, and and on you go. And now imagine that culture at the top of British government. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I think I struggle to articulate. Um, I try and explain that actually, look, fundamentally, I still think I'm a mushy soft leftist. I certainly think you'd think that. If we had a discussion about of domestic politics, you know, rolling your eyes, this is Ed Miliband 2.0. <laughs> I, I could look at a lot of you know, Jeremy Paul Corbyn's domestic agenda and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that'd be very useful, very good. One one thing that I struggled to explain why I was like, no, I don't think this is moderate social democracy, as some of his supporters like to say. It's the cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. So just imagine the prime minister, um, you know, the trashing of mainstream journalism and mainstream journalists as kind of, conspiracists um having an agenda to get me yeah. um the idea that um you know the idea that the civil service is a deep state holding back a socialist agenda the idea like you know ralph Miliband's idea is that you know the civil service would need to be transformed and true socialists put in uh, put in place Fundamentally, that would undermine how the British state has worked since, you know, since ref. <laughs> um, these these were very profound kind of cultural changes that we brought in, and imagine what I saw happen to the Labour Party. I I thought that was kind of a process, or what you were talking about just there, as a process of radicalization. Um, imagine that. Imagine that being kind of pulled from from the very top mm. and and then you get into the more obvious stuff about national security the fact that some of his key advisors would clearly not pass um kind of mi5 security checks i think andrew murray never got a parliamentary pass for example um yeah these people's ideas are not moderate social democratic ideas you know it just just please look at their history mm. how uh, that that's what worried me, and I think Skripal did finally say, like, 
to a lot of people. You know, I still find Labour members now saying, hmm, it was just a matter of comms. I think he was a bit foolish with what he said. So no, he really believed in it. He really believed that actually uh, he would trust the Russian weapons inspectors over our own because he fundamentally didn't trust the the, me- the mechanics and the, the individuals in the British Civil Service and Security Services. That would be, that would be terrifying. Uh, in 2017, I did, you know, 30 odd thousand steps a day because it was about saving the Labour Party, getting Labour Party and peace saved. In 2019, I copped out completely. I didn't, I didn't resign. I said I would only support MPs that were supported by the Jewish Labour Movement. Mm. But I now know that was me finding a way to save my own skin and bring myself to resign uh, because that would be the end of my political career which soon died anyway but that's nothing um when it came to your decision to resign how and i use this specifically how did the labor family deal with it and and treat you um because for lots of people it is a family yeah uh, well I had, um, I'd sort of checked out, um, some time ago from, you know, uh, most, and, and and if if that was a process of stages, the biggest stage happened the day that Corbyn was elected and then sort of the sort of things which happened then. And so it didn't, it didn't feel it didn't feel like a particular emotional wrench for me to resign by the time by the time I did it because I just saw the Labour Party was was sort of dead and didn't represent any of the stuff that I believed in anymore and sort of needed needed in in the in its current form to to die and be reborn or just die um, and then. I I suppose, um, you know, I got it, locally things have got more and more difficult, because um, th- I think the you know the the vast majority of, of members, even if they didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, with um, uh, in my local party didn't want me to be taking the stance that I did. There was a a group of a group of people who'd who had supported me um, coming in, even though I wasn't of their politics. I'd, they there would be people in Barrow who'd sort of they'd been, you know, pretty left, pretty very left wing in the nineteen eighties. They saw Labour losing Barrow as it did in eighty three and eighty seven. The only other times in its history that it did that, and so by nineteen ninety two. They sort of thought, okay, well, it's not really about what we think. We need a Labour MP, and so they were paired to sort of Cantons, really moderate people, pro-defence, pro-defence candidate in in John Hutton. And from their point of view, they had swallowed their own beliefs for the wider Labour Party, um, for progress for the wider Labour Party. Uh, they'd done that with me, so I should do that for Jeremy. And I, I don't think that was right because I think we just. It's at what point 
you step outside of it being a team game and into something which you just fundamentally think is wrong uh and you can't go along with that but i t- i i understand where they were coming from so they so um and you know also i was not um because we to destroy and and at the you know i i didn't there was there was a lot of human relationships which you know i should have managed better on a local level over those over those years as well so they were so stuff locally was kind of broken already by the time i resigned and then with but with with my labor party friends in parliament and a lot of them were were struggling with the same with the same stuff i mean you know the the group of of mps who started the process of actively thinking about what they would do because there was no way in which they could ever stand um with uh Jeremy Corbyn as their leader to even having a theoretical chance that they might make him prime minister that was a much bigger group than the than the the group that ended that eventually but there's a, there's a famous um photo of uh, uh the formation of change uk and then i think there's ian murray just in the background he, and then his excuse oh no i was just grabbing a cup of tea in the room <laughs> i was never actually there <laughs> sort of thing i imagine there was many more who were well he ian of course i mean as subsequently came out went, went much much further was sort of practice you know was sort of practicing speeches that they the, the day before and I'd already got I'd already gone by this stage but yeah so there was a significantly larger and then there was lots of the people who were never going to be part of of leaving for lots of different for lots of different reasons but they kind of they 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 felt the abhorrence they felt the abhorrence to Corbynism they just took a very different view as to whether it was okay to leave a party and Etc. So, so that was weirdly kind of that was weirdly okay. And sort of my relations within the parliamentary Labour Party were sort of were were you know much warmer than you than I think than you I guess than you might have imagined. I've got my, my final question is about kind of the difficulty. Uh, in the way that I feel about how Corbynism ended and, and how it kind of seemed to just go out with a winter, <laughs> it seemed to just it seemed to just kind of crumble before our eyes, and, and it, it didn't end the way I imagined it would end. Yeah. Sort of grand duel between Seamus Mill and Luke Akehurst or something. It just sort of, sort of fell apart. I, I um, you know, I was one of those people until. Until the 2019 election was called, I was very much like, you know, the stay and fight type, you know, pleading with people who wanted to leave Um, and, you know, doing what I could to help with Labour First and and help progress. And and then when it came about, it, it came about, yes, after a catastrophic defeat, which is it's kind of how I really deep down knew it would eventually happen i thought he was so in jeremy corbyn was so in place that there was no way it was going to happen unless a catastrophic defeat happened and i ended up voting for lisa mandy i thought she was a little bit more straightforward and 
seem to understand the direction Labour Party needed to go in mm. um, more than Keir Starmer. And actually, now I've seen Keir Starmer, I would say I'm fairly lukewarm, too warm on him. Um, but he 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 played Corbynites so effectively that he played me. You know, I would say he's not making the arguments that he needs to make. Um, he's not being fair enough. He's not telling hard truths. Mm. And clearly that was all a plan that I'm going to win on this platform and then I'm going to U-turn. And part of me feels absolutely torn. And yes, he's completely played Corbynites and he's saved the Labour Party in many ways. But he mm. did it in a way which I feel continues to... I say use that continues to damage our politics, that inability to be upfront and tell people the hard truths. So I know why he did it, but part of me feels deeply uncomfortable. And when Corbynites say, look, he's broken all these pledges from his original leadership um, campaign, I go, I, I have no answer to that. My first, So my first question is one about Jeremy, how, how the... Corbyn regime ended and, and Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer's um, kind of how he came about. What do you think of him? And what do you think about the concerns I've raised? And then finally, would just be a very final question. You were once said that you were born with a red rosette on. You still have that red rosette. How do you feel towards the Labour Party or have you just found another path to public service with your with your new career? Yeah, the really big questions, and I sort of grapple with this um, uh, myself and to the not very, very many people who will listen to me around the, around the table. So uh, thank you uh, for, for giving me the chance to pour out yeah, my therapy on, 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 on this. I mean, so on the first question on, on, on Keir and the end of quarters, yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. So... It's funny going back and talking with you about the 2015 election and my prediction that Ed was going to lose, even when a lot of Labour people thought and that he wasn't. And I think that was the last time where I kind of felt that I was sort of smarter than most of the rest of the politically sentient um, population and could read politics and the human beings. And after that, I mean, I was sort of, pretty much called everything wrong. I mean, I, I, thought, I thought for a while Liz, Liz our candidate in 2015 was going was gonna to win. I thought that... Um, I thought that whatever... Um, you know, whichever hopeless politician picked up the Corbyn mantle and was crowned the official Corbynite candidate after Jeremy... Um, would would win um and that was wrong and and yes i mean i i sort of would sort of despair at a lot of the stuff that kia said during the campaign uh and yes i think your your observation that it that may well the fact he didn't win by telling the labor party the truth about well about him or about the more importantly about the world and about politics yes probably do you're probably right to store a bigger longer term problem but he wasn't the Corbyn candidate there was a Corbyn candidate and he beat them considerably I, I didn't expect that I didn't see that coming 
and then once once he won, I thought that Corbyn would the Cor Corbynites would be a much bigger and more powerful rump, maybe not within parliamentary party numerically, but certainly as a force. But actually, um, at the moment, they've sort of faded away, and I don't really understand what's happened with that. How it was so bad, and then my understanding of that. And this is what I this is what I discovered when I was, um, you know, in the trenches trying to save my local MP, mm. um, knocking on doors to members. You know, the types who just pay their couple of quid each month and never go to meetings. That they would say things that would kind of blow my mind as someone in the in the factional warfare. They would go, "Oh, I love Jeremy Corbyn and I love Jess Phillips." <laughs> you know, it was really it wasn't so toxically kind of factional for lots of members um, who don't do anything but vote in the leadership election. There was deep, deep kind of personal affection to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, weren't really true Corbynites. And actually, the thing that upset them most, the thing that would come up on the doorstep, is that I'm so disappointed about Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. Um, not realizing the dude has been a lifelong Brexiteer, just going, oh, I'm so disappointed. Um, so when Keir Starmer came along as always on the right side of things on Brexit and had a kind of Corbynite manifesto, um, I also think there's a misogyny aspect in, in the Labour Party as well, uh, played a, a small part as well, um, in why the continuity candidate didn't, uh, wasn't as successful as she was. I do think actually the, the Labour Party mainstream who decide these battles were I love Jeremy Corbyn and I love my local MP. Yeah, but it was actually super nice. Yeah. So that's how I could see it happening. But still, obviously, I was totally taken by surprise by Keir Stumper's victory and, and the manner, you know, just how yeah. it was. But that, that yeah. my, that's my inkling as to how it happened. It wasn't swayed by the activists. It was swayed by those members that just sit around the middle, you know, some middle. Yeah, yeah. And and how is and you asked about how Keir is doing and I I try to sort of stay out of this um yeah this kind of chat uh, at the moment and I'll talk about how was ways in which I've moved on um, but you know I I I I really want I want him to do well. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think it's, um, I don't consider myself a Labour supporter at the moment. Um, and that's a very, very big thing for, 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 uh, for me, it's a big change. I was going to talk about what is in it, in my head, but I want him to do, I think it's really important the country that he does well and the Labour and the, 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 the opposition is as strong as, um, um, as it can be, it's an absolutely yeah, national interest, and I, I worry that he is. I, you see, I, I, I thought that that ruthless way that he he dealt with many Corbynites and sort of convinced me with one of them, and then went ha ha. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought. Oh well, maybe you've got it. Maybe you've got it in you then to be as ruthless and as driven to actually what you need to do to steer the Labour Party, to steer the country, and the change that is needed. 
I'm sort of, I'm not sure on that uh, at the moment. And I think now is a is a really big moment for him and the Labour Party with the new with the new Prime Minister, assuming assuming it's Liz Truss, but you mean whomever it was, and the scale of the problems facing the country. Um, requires, I, I think, a step change in, uh, in his performance in the Labour Party around him performance. Does that mean that many of the the some of the people who have been driven over the years can really engage as part of his top team, and that he listens to them, and he wants to win, and he's hungry enough to to win and to understand that he's been playing it safe and not challenging the Labour Party and not thinking about what the future of the country ought to be and how that change is delivered. My, my hope is that you get to that, that that this is a moment for that, and I think it, it needs to be. And and in terms of my own position, I mean, I, did, I chose to be a crossbencher had to apply to be one and, and I did not know this and relatively to be relatively anarchy I think to understand so surely you, you, you do this obviously I'm fascinated to learn <laughs> but I mean I, I, I and I think in as much as anyone thinks about the House of Lords I, I kind of thought that there were people in the House of Lords who were members of political parties or, and if you weren't, you were a crossbencher. And it turns out, no, that is not the case. The crossbencher is a club, is a group of people, and you have to actively join and be accepted. And when I came along, I was, um, I was told, um, and those of us who came would be members of political parties in the Commons, were told, no, we sort of, we don't really want you. Uh, but you really want to become a, they weren't were quite that blunt, but the definite vibe I was getting. You need to. Sh you can come in after a year of 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 being of being non-aligned. You have to show. You have to sh actively because they they sort. I think not unreasonably they think these people are were party political. They've got it in their blood. They'll go back to it. This is just a temporary thing. Whereas actually, crossbenchers are about trying to achieve change in public policy uh, improvement uh, through a non-party route. And that's kind of where I. That's where I am. I mean, I the the final four five years of the Labour Party under Corbyn was, was, was took a lot out of me, a lot out of a lot of people, um, and I've sort of no desire, particularly to step back into the party environment. <laughs> Whether I'd be welcome or not, <laughs> I did is a separate question. Let's not go down that route, um, but. I think more importantly, I I don't I'm not sure what I believe anymore, and that's really it's a very strange thing from someone who was just so absolutely committed as you know the, the sort of most new Labour person in the in the room in most rooms, um, and I and I just don't know that that. that I'm not convinced that that basic model of of um, investment and reform and it is is sufficient for the scale of the challenge we've got. And I'm and I'm not actually sure what is sufficient. 
and so I'm sort of as a cross as a crossbencher, I don't have to kind of engage in that. Although I sort of feel, look, the progressive politics I think is is has reached a here and and internationally is at a, is at a low point. And you talked about you know people not being good enough, and I think that's part of it. And there's a question of would the Labour Party's history be different if new Labour government had nurtured more people and more people hadn't left or that Ed Miliband had brought in more, brought on more moderate people. But I think it's bigger than individuals. I, I think that the problem, it doesn't feel like anyone has got a compelling answer to the big problems that we've got at the moment. Um, I don't think the Labour Party and the left, even the moderate end of it, have got an answer to the big questions in a, in a way that I felt that New Labour did in the 90s and 2000s. It feels that that moment has gone and nothing has replaced it. Um, and, um, and as I have not been smart enough to solve these problems on my own, <laughs> uh, I'm sort of left kind of being happy, being a sort of, a, a, a being kind of retired from party politics, I guess. I I actually a lot of the lots of what you just said there kind of I feel similarly I find myself more and more thinking that some of the really obvious challenges that we are facing with our crumbling infrastructure a decade of stagnant wages our crippling housing crisis I actually find the voices online who are speaking most cogently on how to deal with these issues are of a political tribe who I'd previously never associated with. These are people kind of on the right who are saying that this is how we deliver growth and actually having a slightly coherent idea of how we deliver growth and lift up everyone. Yeah. Um, when the left is still, and they're quite rightly, in, you know, hammering home broader issue, like broader inequality um and some of the outrageous inequality but when it comes to issues of um improving growth um lifting everyone the answers aren't really there an obsession with tackling the one percent which i think is a legitimate issue but incredibly difficult to challenge you know, tra like uh, huge wealth that can travel across borders you know i think some of those just the big issues i think there's a lack of thinking about it um and there's just not enough thinking about some of the, just the concrete you know you know how we simply my obsession at the moment i think something about the housing crisis just how we get more homes built i think just like the left are not thinking about it and how do we tackle entrenched voices that stop new homes being built in the areas of highest growth you know we have a huge growth industry in our um in our labs in Cambridge and Oxfordshire and that they are prevented from growing because we can't build any new lab space or any new homes around them. These I think are kind of relatively, you know, you can put those issues in a box. They're not global, how do we fight climate change, how do we fight the one percent? But actually the ideas about how we just start getting growth back into our country, I just don't think many of the left are talking about it. And I just feel a little bit disillusioned and <laughs> well, i felt disillusioned for a while um 
And I guess Labour Party member, right? Is, is there any other? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not a Labour Party member, and I would just well, part of me doing this podcast is saying, well, actually, what needs to happen is individuals stop being so tribal. Just ability to say, actually, a Labour Party aren't doing very well on this. They're doing this wrong. Here's some different ideas. Is essential for for good politics and good policy. And at yeah. the moment, individuals are afraid to be candid and step out of line. And just yeah. to thank you and have a chat to you for being one of those few voices willing to be candid and step out of line um, when it must have been incredibly difficult to have done so. Thank you. Well, all the best with this series. It's been great to come in and speak to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, listen without the adverts and hear bonus episodes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. That's www.patreon.com slash steppingoutofline. If you want to find out more about what Leo's getting up to, then check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. And if you want to find out more about John Woodcock and the things that he's doing and up to, then make sure to check out his Twitter. That's at Lord Walney, at Lord Walney. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.